1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read the very, very end of uh, verse 2 as uh, it, it shows up in the paragraph here in the text. Uh, Paul writes, uh, teach and urge these things. And then he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree uh, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, uh, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Well, we've been going through First Timothy for quite a while. We've had a few breaks, uh, not interruptions, but detours here and there uh, for different reasons. Um, but So you might not remember or recall the early part of this book, but this is not the first time in Paul's first epistle to Timothy where he warns his young apprentice pastor of the ever-present threat of false teaching creeping its way into the church. This was actually something he dealt with in the first chapter of the letter, and really he opens the letter, other than the initial greeting, the first thing he tells him in the letter uh, is, de- is something with detailed instructions about what he was to do, how he was to respond to false teachers in the church. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he tells him, really, that that was why he left them there. The reason he left Timothy there in Ephesus, one of the reasons, was that he might uh, guard the church against false teaching. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4. He says, uh, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, here it is, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he says one of the main reasons there was that he left him in Ephesus in his place, basically, was so that he might charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, to not teach false doctrines. So that, was, that was part of Timothy's primary task as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, was not just to teach true doctrine, the the true doctrine of Christ, although that's true, but the other side of that coin was that he was to charge others not to teach different doctrine, heterodoxy or heresy or error. Paul uses the same word there for different doctrine or teaching different doctrine that he does in our text as well. It's the same subject He's, he's going in both in the first chapter as well as in the last chapter. You could say it kind of bookends the letter, this warning about an admonition about false teaching. Now, we who are in the church, uh, both members and pastors and elders alike, uh, we, we should take that, uh, the presence of false teaching, the threat of it, much more seriously than we do. We in the church, especially pastors and elders in the church, we, are, we who are given the charge of guarding the flock need to be much more aware of the threat of false teaching and heresy uh, that threatens the church. And we need to be on guard against it at all times. Um, you know, Very often we, we kind of just go along our merry way without giving it much thought, but it doesn't take much to, uh, to see that it's, it's always there. You know, I won't go into this right now, but our own denomination is struggling with some things, some things that are being taught in certain places uh, that I think fit this fit this description and they were causing 
bad things to happen in the church. They are harming the peace and purity of the church. So it's one of those things where, you know, it would be easy for us to say, well, we're in a, a solid, reformed, uh, conservative denomination. We don't have to worry about that. That's why I picked this denomination. Maybe you're saying, that's why I picked this church. There's no such thing as a bulletproof, bulletproof denomination or church. Error is always creeping at the door if we're not on guard against it. Paul actually told, you might know, the Ephesian elders, same church where he left Timothy here, tells them much the same thing in his farewell address to them in Acts chapter 20. You know, in Acts 20, Paul is on his way. He tells them he doesn't think they'll ever see him again. And he tells them a couple things. He tells them first, in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27, he reminds them that he was innocent of the blood of all men. Why was that? Because he tells them, because he did not, quote, shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. So there was nothing in the word of God that Paul did not seek to tell them and instruct them about and teach them. But then he says one more thing. There was another side of that coin. He says in verses 28 to 31, he says, pay careful attention. He tells these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's a pretty heady calling and, and charge there. But then he says this, and the word for isn't there, but it's kind of in the blank space. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Think about that. Like, you know, sometimes you, maybe you think this of me, I don't know, but sometimes you might hear a pastor going on on a certain note over and over again, and you might say, come on, pastor, you know, change the subject. You sound like a, you know, you're on your hobby horse again. You're a one, a one note uh, chorus, a one trick pony, whatever the right phrase is for that. He tells them, remember Paul was on these missionary journeys. He would stop at a certain place, plant a church, stay there for a length of time, sometimes short, sometimes long, and then move to the next place and preach the gospel once the church was established. Well, Ephesus had the privilege of having Paul preach to them for three years at one point. And then they have Timothy left behind, I mean, Paul's right-hand man, to continue the work. But one of the things he tells them and, and reminds them that they would know full well that for three years, one of the things he did night and day with tears was warn them about false teaching and admonish them with tears to be on the lookout for it, even to watch among their own number of the elders for it. That's a pretty serious thing to say. That might sound like overkill to you, but it probably shouldn't. And for Paul, the Apostle Paul, no, no less, to do that night and day for three years should tell us and be instructive to us about how ever-present that threat is. Even if a, a church that Paul founded and taught at personally night and day, sounds like two services, right? For three years, three years, and that did not make them immune from false teaching. He didn't leave Ephesus and say, okay, well, I've done my job. I've taught them very well. I've never held anything back. There is no way they'll fall for false teaching. No way they'll allow someone to weasel their way in. 
No, in fact, he tells Timothy when he leaves him behind, you have to watch for that. You have to charge certain persons not to teach false doctrine and other, other doctrines. And then he tells the elders after Timothy's probably gone to do the same. So here in our text, once again, we see that the job of a pastor or elder regarding doctrine is always twofold. First, we have to make the whole counsel of God known to God's people by faithfully teaching and preaching through the whole Bible, not to skip parts that we find difficult. And Paul says to fail to do that is to be guilty of the blood of men. It's that serious of a thing. You know, on any given Sunday, you might not think of this as a very serious thing. And I sometimes joke around from time to time. I hope not too much. But he says to not teach God's word faithfully is to be guilty of the blood of men. That's how serious a thing this is. We are to feed the flock with the word of God. But the second thing a faithful pastor must do is guard the flock from false teaching, error, and heresy. And to fail to do that is to sit idly by as the wolves devour the flock of God. How many pastors and elders do this under the pretense of obeying what is sometimes called the 11th commandment? You know what that commandment is? Two words. If you've seen Roadhouse, you know it. It's be nice. We act like that's the 11th commandment. Be nice. Don't ever say anything hard. Don't ever rebuke anyone uh, directly. Don't mention names. Don't, uh, don't be too, uh, too much of a stickler. But there's nothing nice or kind about letting wolves run loose among God's flock. A faithful shepherd will feed the flock, but he'll also protect the flock from the wolves, even as you know David did in his youth as a shepherd. Now, how many pastors have blood on their hands in the eyes of God because they fail to teach and preach God's word faithfully, and not only that, but they fail to guard the flock from false teaching? How many of the, quote, so-called watchmen of Israel in Ezekiel 33, the way it puts it, have failed to warn the people of God or call them to repentance and will have their blood on their hands in God's eyes. I'm, I'm afraid far too, too many. Ezekiel 33, if you're not familiar with that passage, Ezekiel 33, 7 to 9, the Lord, in the previous verses, he gives kind of a, an illustration or analogy. He says, he, he gives the analogy of a watchman on the wall and says that the people, I'm paraphrasing, the people pick a watchman to watch for incoming armies and he doesn't blow the trumpet, he doesn't warn the people and the city is attacked and it falls their blood is on his hands. He didn't do his job. And he says, now if that watchman sounds the alarm and the people still don't get ready and they still don't go to their battle stations, so to speak, then their blood is on their heads and their hands. And he is, you know, he's innocent of, of their blood. Well, then he applies that to the shepherds of Israel. He says, Ezekiel 33 7 through 9, the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel, he says, So you, in, in, in likewise, in a similar way, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Still want to be a pastor or an elder? Like, 
that that's a tough thing to say. Yeah, you're too late. You're you're. Um, you know that's that's how serious of a thing it is to not be faithful in delivering God's word, whether it's difficult or not, whether it's a call to repent of iniquity or not. Uh, and we sometimes, I think, tend to shrink back. I know I'm tempted to it from time to time to shrink back from declaring God's word because its message will not be popular, that sometimes it will be hated and despised, and, and not just from those outside the church, frankly. And so the Lord reminds us that we must faithfully proclaim his word at all times and leave the results to him. Well, at the end of, of verse 2 in our text, uh, Paul, Paul tells Timothy to teach and urge these things. Now, what does that refer to? Uh, it refers, I think, to everything he said before, uh, before that. Uh, it's easy to say. Uh, more or less everything he had told him up to that point, but especially what he had just talked about. But now he turns to something else. He talks about teaching and urging these things to Timothy, and he says, now if someone teaches something else than this, there's a problem. He turns our attention to those who would teach different doctrine than what Paul had taught him. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if some of you are fans of police shows on TV. I've always seemed to gravitate towards those kind of shows. I don't know if they still have these things. They probably don't. But, you know, back, back when I was a kid, it seemed like every, every so often they'd have an episode where there was a criminal and nobody had a picture of him. So what did they do? They'd bring in the police sketch artist and they'd have the person give a description and they try to draw a picture, you know, by, by their description and show what the guy might look like. They still, I think, do that in our day sometimes as well. And what did they do that? They, they'd show the picture, the drawing, the sketch, so that people could be, all, be on the lookout for this person matching this description and try to catch uh, the criminal and arrest them. Well, in our, in our text, Paul in some ways gives us a thumbnail sketch of what false teaching often looks like. He gives us a thumbnail sketch of false teaching itself and the false teachers in many ways in a brief form. And so I think in following his instructions in our text, we will be uh, better equipped to spot false teaching when it rears its ugly head in church. Look at verse 3 again. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. That is a brief description of what Timothy was to be on the lookout for. And what's the first thing he points out about false teaching? It will be that, verse 3, it will be a, quote, different doctrine than what Paul had preached and taught. Now, Paul clearly taught the doctrine of Christ in something of a systematic fashion. You might know he had given Timothy, you could say, a template or a pattern of doctrine to follow. And we would do well in the church today to do likewise. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, the very next letter he writes to Timothy, he tells him this. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul, in some ways, had taught Timothy, his own words, a pattern of sound words. And what was Timothy to do with that pattern? He was to first, he was to follow it, to pass it along, to follow it in his own teaching. And the second thing he was told to do was guard it. Guard that good deposit. And how was he to do that? By the Holy Spirit. It was a pattern shown to him to be replicated. It was a deposit to be passed on faithfully to the next generation. 
That is the way that Paul taught. That is the way many of God's uh, pastors have taught since. So when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, uh, in the church especially, innovation is a bad thing. You know, in, in many walks of life and many different kinds of things, uh, innovation is, is, is always the key. Always progressing, always doing some new thing to improve. New, there's no new and improved when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you are hearing something new in the church and not just new to you personally, you are almost certainly hearing false doctrine of some kind. If this is literally some new doctrine that we haven't heard before and it's not found in the scriptures, it is false doctrine. In the same way Paul describes this heterodox doctrine as, quote, verse 3, not agreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? What's he, what is he referring to there? He's not talking about having some kind of canon within a canon. He's not saying that the only important books in your Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where, where we find the actual words of Christ in his earthly ministry. No, I think uh, what he's saying is, uh, when Paul talks about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has in mind all the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, including his own writings in the scriptures. You know, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul's teaching really was the teaching of Christ himself. Ultimately, Paul's words in scripture are the words of Christ to his church. You know, when you read the book of Acts, we've noted this a few times, the very first verse of Acts, I'm doing this from memory, so I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Uh, he tells Timothy, or tell Timothy, tells Theophilus, uh, rather, he says, in the first book or first volume I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus, what? Began to do and to teach. And there's kind of an elliptical statement there. What's he saying that Acts is about? the continued doings and what? Teachings of Christ. You know, Christ, we, we often in reform circles rightly talk about the threefold office of Christ, that at the right hand of God, what is he doing? He's fulfilling his office of prophet, priest, and king. What does a prophet do? Prophet says, thus saith the Lord, gives the word of God. Well, is Jesus still active as a prophet right now? Yes. He is not giving us more scripture, but he... He works through his word and even through the faithful preaching of his word. That's why disciples are made. He, he certainly did that through his apostles as they wrote the New Testament letters and books. So Paul's words are the words of Christ to his church. And that's certainly what Paul has in mind elsewhere. In Colossians 3.16, he tells the Colossian church, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What, what does that imply? The psalms, Old Testament, are part of the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and that includes singing the psalms of all things. And so this morning I ask you, are you studying the word of God? Are you spending time in God's word for yourself? Are you reading it? Are you prayerfully meditating or thinking about it? Are you diligently attending upon the preaching and teaching of the word of God on the Lord's day? If you're not, among other things, you will not be well equipped to spot false teaching and error when you hear it or read it. You will be easier prey for those who would try to speak twisted things 
and draw away disciples unto themselves. You know, this is one of the reasons why our secondary, or we sometimes call them subordinate standards in the church, are so important to the life and health of the church. You know, we're going to see this, this evening at 6 o'clock in our study of the Shorter Catechism in question 2, that the scriptures alone are the only standard for faith and practice, are the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. They are the only rule of faith and obedience, as the larger catechism puts it. But the subordinate standards, which are subordinate to the scriptures, uh, the things like our creeds, our confessions, our catechisms, what they do for us is they give us a pattern of sound words. They teach us in a systematic way the system of doctrine that's taught in the scriptures. And in so doing, one of the things they help us to do is to discern false teaching from true Christian doctrine. You know, years ago, my first job when I got out of the Navy, some of you know, was, a, was as a bank teller out in Carlsbad. And, you know, we had to watch for counterfeits, and that's getting harder and harder. And, you know, we had a little yellow pen that you'd mark on the paper, and it would turn a different color if it wasn't the right kind of paper. And it's gotten more and more complicated. But one of the things they always told us was the way to spot counterfeits is to study the real thing. You don't, that doesn't mean you don't study false doctrine too, but, but the main way you, you spot the fake is to study the true one. And so that if we're not doing that, we are not going to be equipped to, to find and see the false teaching when it comes. And so the creeds and confessions and catechisms, they give us that clear pattern of the doctrine taught in Scripture. And so I, I encourage you to study your Bible and also to study your subordinate standards as they show the pattern taught in Scripture. Well, the second thing that Paul tells us about in this, uh, this uh, sketch, thumbnail sketch of false teaching was not only does it not agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ, it also does not agree with the teaching, he says, that accords with godliness. False teaching just about always has in its wake the fact that it somehow undermines godliness among God's people. You know, in some ways you could say that's the goal of it is to undermine godliness among the people of God. You could say that in this regard, you know, we know the teaching by its fruits. We know the teaching, whether it's true or false, sometimes by its fruits. What kind of fruit or result does a particular doctrine tend towards? Does it tend to lead its adherents to neglect God's law? Does it downplay or disregard the need for holiness in the life of the believer? Does it omit, omit the need for repentance unto life, any of those things. And those things are very common. They are very common to be heard and taught. Now that happens in a number of ways that I won't spend the time to go into this morning, but you can be sure that sound doctrine will be doctrine that accords with godliness and false or heterodox teaching will not. Well, the next thing Paul does is describe not just the teaching itself, but also the character and motives of the false teachers themselves, as well as the fruits of their teaching and ungodly influence. As the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 7:16, you will know them or recognize them by what? By their fruits. You know, false prophets are wolves who dress in sheep's clothing, Jesus says. In other words, they will give every appearance of being numbered among Christ's sheep, of being true pastors or prophets or shepherds. You know, false teachers don't come with a name tag telling you they're false teachers. The, the wolves don't show up in full wolf regalia. They show up dressed up like a sheep. 
but we will know them by their fruits. In verses 4 through 5, look what Paul says in our text. He's saying about the one who doesn't hold to Christ's teaching. He says, he, this false teacher, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So anyone who teaches things contrary to the sound words of Christ and contrary to what accords with godliness, you know, people wouldn't follow them if they didn't seem like they knew what they were saying. If they didn't have a magnetic personality of some kind, if they didn't seem quite brilliant and clever, but such a person, no matter how clever they may seem, what does Paul say? They're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. It's, it's as if they're full of hot air, is kind of what Paul is saying there. You know, unlike the teaching of Christ, which is sound, or that word also means healthy, the false teacher uh, on the other side of the coin has an unhealthy craving, Paul says, for controversy and for quarrels about words. And such teachers treat the Bible in some ways kind of like a plaything or a source of trivia or sport. It's like they're looking for a fight. They have kind of an unrestrained desire to show everyone just how gifted or brilliant that they are. I think sometimes one of the telltale signs is they'll make much of themselves and not much of Christ. You know, the, the true pastor should be a lot like John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist said about Christ? He must increase and I must decrease. Well, the false shepherd, I think, doesn't have that in mind. They have their own promotion, rather, in mind. And so stay away from such people. Stay away from the cult of personality in the church. The church should never found itself around a cult of personality in the pulpit. Uh, do, not sit, uh, do not sit under the ministry of such a person. Such a person is not, uh, not only not a pastor, they are a spiritual unhealth, spiritually unhealthy person, is what Paul tells us in our text. And the sad fruits of such a ministry, quote-unquote, what do they produce? Division, scandal, and other things in the church. Now, Paul tells us that such false teaching and an ungodly influence tends to produce some pretty bad things in the church, doesn't it? He says it produces what? Envy, dissension, slander, that also could be translated blasphemy, evil suspicions and constant friction among people. And look at how he describes them. They're depraved in mind, depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth. They don't even have the truth. They certainly aren't teaching it. And then he adds, imagining or supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Despite their outward appearance of giftedness, their appearance of having a deep understanding of, of the things of God, such teachers are really and ultimately depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They, they might know the Bible really well or seem to know the Bible really well, but Paul says they're deprived of the truth. They don't really know the truth at all. Last but not least, Paul tells us about the motives of such false teachers. Now, it's hard for us to discern people's motives. We have a hard time enough with our own motives, but Paul tells us something about theirs. He says that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now, he's not talking about true godliness in Christ. I think here he's talking about 
what we would think of as kind of a mere outward show of religion. They view this as nothing but a means of selfish gain, probably most certainly of financial prosperity. Now, we should not approach Christianity or the church in general with a view to what we can get out of it. I hope we get a lot out of it. We should get a lot out of it, but that shouldn't be the approach that we, that we take. Godliness, true godliness, is to be an end in and of itself because it's pleasing to God who has saved us by his grace. God is pleased when his redeemed children in Christ live and worship in a way that pleases him and glorifies the name of Christ. That's why Paul says in the very next verse, which we won't look at today, but I'll mention it, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. If the ministry were all about financial prosperity, who wouldn't want to be a pastor? Who wouldn't line up and sign up for that gig? That's why Paul strikes a balance between showing double honor, back in the previous chapter in verse 17, showing double honor to faithful pastors, and yet when you come to chapter 6, he spends the bulk of chapter 6 talking about the dangers of the love of money. There's a balance to be struck between those two things. No doubt... There are many false prophets, even in our day, wolves in sheep's clothing, and some of them, some of them are the, of the more obvious variety, the so-called televangelists who spend most of their time talking about your money and asking you to send it to them, and if you send them your seed money, God will bless you. How many of you have seen and heard such things? Too many times. In a half an hour program, they might spend 20 minutes talking about money. That might be a, that might be a hint that something is wrong. Let us beware of the ministry of hot air that is all sound and fury edifying no one. You know, we should all be hopefully more and more committed to the faithful study and ministry of the word of God that accords with the sound words of Christ and accords with the teaching that accords with godliness. And so this morning I ask that you would, by the grace of God, make it your aim and goal in all of your own study of the Bible, as well as in all your diligent attendance upon the preaching and teaching of the word of God, at church, that you make it your aim that you might grow in grace and godliness because of it. You know, never let the study of the scriptures on your own or here in church be just an intellectual exercise when you study the Word of God, or, or even when you hear the preaching of it. You know, think about the Pharisees in the Gospels in John chapter five. The Pharisees were rebuked by Christ pretty, pretty, pretty soundly. But one of the things he tells them is that you search the scriptures diligently. They weren't neglecting their Bible, their Old Testament. He tells them, yeah, great job. You, you search the scriptures diligently, but what did he tell them? But yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. John 5:39. You can search the scriptures. You can study the Bible till you're blue in the face. But if you don't come to Christ for life, you've missed the entire point. Similarly, if you don't seek to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ by your study, you have missed the point. And so I asked this morning, have you come to Christ by faith that you may have eternal life? And what does James 1.22 say? He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Don't settle for listening to sermons. Don't not listen to sermons. I'm I'm the last one that will tell you that. Attend upon the ministry of the word in church at every opportunity that you get. Don't settle for listening to a sermon. Put it into practice. Seek to grow in your knowledge of it. Seek to remember it. Think about it. 
seek to examine what you hear by the word of God, as our catechism tells us. Don't, don't take your pastor's word for anything. Sit here with an open Bible. And when you hear me saying something, look and make sure that's what it says. First and foremost, seek to examine what you hear like the Bereans did by the word of God. Receive it if it is the truth. Receive it as the truth with faith. Meditate upon it. Hide it in your heart. Memorize it. And bring forth the fruits of it in our lives to the glory of God. Amen.